Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff and today Aaron and Greg and I are going to explore the question of whether we're in the golden age of mountain biking right now. So back in 2014, one of our contributors, Michael Paul, said in a comment that we are currently in the golden age of mountain biking. And that's been a couple of years now. Uh, but since that time, I believe Greg's made a similar claim, more specifically about trail building being in a golden age. But I thought it'd be a fun discussion to talk about some of the good things that are happening in mountain biking right now, and then also maybe talk about some of the challenges. So... To start off, what do you guys think? Are we in a golden age of mountain biking? What does that even mean to you? Well, according to Merriam-Webster, the a golden age is a period of great happiness, prosperity, and achievement. So going by that definition, I'd say that we are at least uh, part of the sport is in a, in a golden age. I think at least from a, a product standpoint is particularly we're in a golden age of mountain biking. But if we're talking about, you know, racing and actual participation, I'd say the golden age for that was probably in the 90s, you know, when you had really big race teams, you had big sponsors from outside the sport. So, you know, car companies like Honda and Volkswagen and Volvo and drink companies were sponsoring teams back then. And not just in terms of the number of racers showing up, but there was, you know, a huge fan presence. And you just, uh, you know, with the way that the sport is sliced up into so many niches and there's, you know, the pie is just continually sliced thinner and thinner. You just don't see those huge turnouts, both in the number of racers or certainly the number of fans is nowhere near it used to be. I actually found a little bit of stats on this. This overall participation in cycling is way down. It's uh, The high was 56 million, and that was in 1995. And I think they defined it as someone who rode their bikes more than seven times in a year, I think. So not even like that, you know, not even riding that often. I'm talking about less than once a month. In 2015, that number had dropped to 36 million. So is that is that in the U.S. or worldwide? That is a good question. I, I think that's just U.S. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, I got that from, I believe it was from the People for Bikes or possibly the National Bicycle Dealers Association, one of those two organizations that's from their study. So, I mean, as you can see, you know, we've got a lot more people than we did in 1995, but less people are riding bikes, at least in the U.S. I would say, sure, some aspects of mountain biking are currently experiencing a golden age, but the sport as a whole, you know, I'd have to disagree with uh, Michael Paul's statement. You know, we'll dive into some of these details soon, but in addition to racing being down, like Aaron mentioned, the industry is taking a hard hit right now overall with sales down in mountain biking, interbike attendance down, which is sort of an indicator of the industry at large, more brick and mortar shops closing every year. You know, some good things are definitely happening, but to say the entire sport is booming, would, I would say is incorrect. Okay. Well, let's talk about some specifics then. And let's start with the good news first. What's, what's going really strong right now in mountain biking, in your opinion? I would say the bikes themselves, you know, and this is across the spectrum of mountain bikes. They're more capable than ever. You know, XC bikes continue to get lighter and they, and stiffer and some of them are gaining travel at the same time, you know, so a cross country bike used to be 80 millimeters of travel, then it used a hundred for a long time. And now you're starting to see more and more 
120 millimeter travel bikes, but they are full on race bikes. You know, you have trail bikes that can be built. You can build up as light as you want. Essentially, you can build up a trail, a light duty trail bike that you could go and be competitive at an XC race on, or you could bust out a 30 pound enduro rig that you could do 50 foot gap jumps with, but you could still pedal the bike all day long. So I think just across the board, I mean, bikes are so much more capable than they were and they're generally more reliable. There's all these newfangled products we've got, you know, one by drivetrains and big, huge cassettes with a lot of range. We've got dropper posts, all that good stuff. So bikes are in a very good place right now. And, um, you know, I know everyone likes to complain about how expensive bikes are, us included. But if you actually look at the numbers, I think, Jeff, you mentioned this in a recent article, we've actually seen the prices on the most expensive models drop over the last couple of years. Yeah, that's right. When I was researching an article about resale values of mountain bikes, you know, I was looking at MSRPs from like 2014, 2015, 2016, and across the major brands, all of them are dropping prices. Um, it may not be readily apparent to, you know, the everyday person because you only buy a bike every few years. But if you look at the trend over the last few years, yeah, prices are coming down, which is, is good for consumers. Yeah. So, I mean, it's still an expensive bike. I mean, you know, and bike compared to $8,500 bike, still a lot of money, but you know, we are seeing those prices decrease. And then if you're talking about the prices for entry and mid-level bikes, you know, those have kind of remained pretty consistent, fairly constant over the last few years, but the technology and capability of these bikes is, has greatly increased. So, you know, again, just like bikes at all price points are better than they were even just a handful of years ago. We've also, I mean, we've got so many options. Just think about all the brands that you can get a bike from now. You have the major brands, so you've got your Trek, your Specialized, your Giant, and then you've got boutique brands that are still really popular, such as you know Santa Cruz and Ibis and Pivot and Yeti, Rocky Mountain, brands like that. And then you have all these consumer direct brands coming to the U.S. So we've seen Comensal and YT in the last year or so come to the U.S. with their consumer direct model. You have Canyon coming later in uh, 2017, which is going to be a really big deal because Canyon is a huge company and they already kind of dominate the European market. And they started as a consumer direct company. That was their model to begin with. So, yeah. And I mean, what you get for the money is is it's pretty crazy. And they already have a leg up on, you know, specialized and Trek and Giant because they already have been doing this consumer direct model. And that's why you see like Giant and Trek, I guess, currently are starting to do some ordering online kind of, you know, where you don't, where you can order a bike from them, um, but it gets delivered to your local shop. So you're starting to see some, you know, funky kind of hybrid models, business models, that is, in terms of how people are getting bikes. But we just have, we just got so many options now. It's a good time to be a mountain bike purchaser. Yeah, I just want to add on to that. Yeah, the options are just crazy now where no matter what kind of riding you're into, there's a bike that's suited for that specific thing, you know. At times it might be, you know, sort of confusing and frustrating because you're like, geez, what are all these options out there? But at the end of the day, if you do your homework, you're going to find a bike that fits your style of riding, like your terrain, 
your local conditions. Um, that stuff is all out there right now. So it's almost like with all these options, you're kind of getting a custom bike. Like there's enough bikes out there as there are riders. So, you know, if you want to ride gravel, then there's gravel bikes and you yeah. want to ride snow, there's all kinds of fat bikes. If you want a titanium drop bar, 29 plus rigid bike packing bike that's out there, you know, and which is pretty crazy you can, you could buy that from someone or, you know, kind of what you touched on. There's, there's also no shortage of custom frame builders. Like we've kind of seen a, a renaissance in that in the last 10 years or so, uh, more and more people just building bikes out of their garages. And some of those companies have taken off and they're starting to do, you know, decent levels of production. But yeah, I mean, just about anybody with a blowtorch is putting together bikes these days. <laughs> Yeah, so another area that um, I think a lot of us can agree on that's in sort of a golden age right now is trail building. There aren't a lot of hard numbers on the number of new trails that are being opened, but I know for me personally, it seems like there are definitely a lot of trail projects going on all the time and new trails being opened up. Greg, you mentioned this in one of your articles. Talk to us a little bit about the golden age of trail building. Yeah, in my opinion, if anything in mountain biking is having a golden age right now, trail building is it. You know, like you said, Jeff, it's difficult to get widespread data, um, but on certain local levels, we can definitely pull numbers. Here are a few examples. So one great example is the Coldwater Mountain Trail System in Alabama. Coldwater Mountain didn't exist uh, just a few years ago. I reported on the inaugural trail opening there uh, for Dirt Rag Magazine back in early 2013. And that was ground zero, and now you have some forty plus miles of single track there. I mean, just zero to fifty, you know, zero to forty, I guess you could say, in next to no time. Another great example right now is Northwest Arkansas, which is blowing up. Got in touch with the folks there, and uh, in twenty sixteen, they built fifty two miles of new single track in Northwest Arkansas. That's an insane number, and for twenty seventeen. Um, they have another 100 miles of trail ready to be built. So, I mean, that's just an absolutely massive number. But to look at trail building like over time, a great example is Moab, Utah, because Moab is one of the original mountain bike destinations, one of the first destinations. And the riding there really began on old Jeep and moto trails. And while a few trails were built over the years, building has really ramped up just in the last three or four years. Over the past uh, roughly three-ish years, they've been building new bike-specific trail in Moab at the rate of about 30 to 40 miles per year. And compare that to many years where there's zero miles of construction, and it's uh, pretty significant what they're doing. Even in Moab, they realize that they have to build more trails to stay relevant for mountain bike tourism. And that doesn't include any of the examples I could give here in Colorado or other places in the nation. So when you look at those case studies, it, it's pretty clear. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot going on here in Georgia and in the Atlanta metro area as well. So we're building a lot of new trails. What about the trail building techniques? Uh, there's definitely been some changes there in the last few years, a lot more data-driven trail building. What do you know about that, Aaron? Yeah, well, I think mostly it's... Um you know, the sport is starting to come into its own and there's more people are learning the proper way to build trails. So it's less just, you know, straight up the hill and straight down the other side. And you're taking a lot of different, you know, your environmental impact, your 
erosion, you know, how well is this trail going to hold up over time, things like that. Those are all, I guess there's just a lot more planning that seems to go into trail building now. Um, you know, flow trails are very so hot right now, along with adding features. So that could be anything from, a, you know, a skinny or a log ride or jump or a rock garden. You're starting to see a lot of alternate lines. And this is even on areas where the terrain is maybe maybe not that, you know, amazing. It's not going to blow your mind. But you can still build a really damn good trail. Like I was just in Florida last week and I rode Santos and Kroom and with Licucci and, you know, Florida's pretty flat. You know, it's not entirely flat, but certainly compared to here in Atlanta, even it's pretty, pretty dang pancake flat, <laughs> but they managed to keep it really interesting and really fun. And they just, you know, I think builders are working with the terrain that's available to them really well and just putting out high quality single track everywhere. You know, you're starting to see trail systems focus on progression. So that's, you know, part of the, the, uh, you know, having features on the side of the trail or a skills area, something that allows people to, to work up, you know, so they can do a couple little baby jumps and then, you know, you move up to the tabletops and then, you know, you have your line with the doubles and everything. So I, I think that's cool to see that, um, more trail systems are incorporating some of that progression from the, from the get go. Cause I realize that, you know, if you just build your trail one kind of way all the time, then that might uh, not be so interesting for, for riders in the long term. Yeah. So all these new trails and all these innovative techniques are being carried out, not just by individuals. It's not, you know, like the early days of mountain biking when people would just go out in the woods and just start raking and riding. Greg, can you talk a little bit about some of the organizational things that have happened recently in regards to trail building? Yeah, Jeff, I think like a lot of these benefits are from mountain bikers getting organized and actually figuring out what the hell they're doing. You know, IMBA's been around for a long time, and a lot of this is credit to IMBA as well. But uh, I think even more than IMBA, local organizations that have figured out how to get organized, how to influence policy in their local areas, how to raise money, and how to be effective in building trails is what are getting a lot of these projects off the ground. You know, and as time goes on, like, people build on the shoulders of the people before them, you know. And IMBA laid a lot of the groundwork 10, 20 years ago. And a lot of these organizations now have been around for quite some time. It's possible that even the people that founded many of these local organizations are no longer involved um, explicitly, but the people have come after them have learned from the people before. And we're just seeing like this organization and professionalism accelerate, I think. And again, like I said, that goes into funding, but it goes into learning to work with land managers and building relationships there. And it was a result of all this work over years, I think is what we're seeing the fruits of now. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of work leading up to where we are right now. And it seems like the advocacy just keeps getting stronger and stronger each year. So that's definitely a credit to mountain biking. All right. So what about, I wanted to talk about mountain bike tourism. Um, Greg, you mentioned some projects like Coldwater and Arkansas, but it seems like there are a lot of private companies, but also boards of tourism and even state governments and local governments that are working to attract mountain bikers. Can you guys think of some examples of where this is happening right now? I would say, 
you know, Pisgah would probably be a prime example of this because I've been I've been riding there probably a little over 10 years now, I guess, since I moved to the Atlanta area. And it's about a three hour drive for for us from here. So it's a great place to go ride, you know, for the weekend. If you get a long weekend to go up there, the trails are phenomenal. But yeah, 10 years ago, the place looked totally different than it does now. You go there in the summer now and you see the trailheads are just packed out with cars from all over the place. Like you go to the bike shop at any time of day and it's just hopping, you know, both Sycamore Cycles and the hub there in Pisgah, which has, you know, a bar and, uh, you know, they have food trucks outside. It's like a party there every day. I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible it's to, to see how much, you know, that area has developed and changed and how many riders now go there and consider it, you know, one of the best places to ride in the world, you know, in just a few short years, it's kind of really turned a sleepy little town into a, a mountain bike Mecca. In my opinion, I think there are two sort of main categories of people who are really pursuing mountain bike tourism. The first one are towns where you know, they used to be based on resource extraction. The, their economies used to be based on that. And they've have, they're having to find a way to bring income into their community. And they do that through tourism. And with mountain bike trails, like Aaron said earlier, you can build great trails in lots of places. Like you don't necessarily need huge mountains. So we're seeing a lot of desert towns embrace this and really roll with it. But I think another, which is probably even easier to study, are um, current resort towns and mountain towns, specifically like ski towns. They have like a ski resort there. And they're turning to mountain biking for tourism during the summer months. A great example of this is Park City, Utah, you know, which has, there's been some combination of ski resorts, but has roughly like three different ski resorts, depending on how you count it now, uh, in Park City. So it's one of the original ski towns in Utah. But just a couple of years ago, they tipped over to the point where they're actually bringing in more visitors and revenue in the summer than the winter, due primarily to mountain biking. That's really rare, even among ski towns in Colorado and Utah. But you know, as our climate continues to change, um, you could debate that all day long, but uh, resorts are looking for ways to expand their summer operations one way or another. Here in Colorado, we recently had legislation passed uh, within the past year or two to make it easier for ski resorts to build summer attractions with less red tape. And that includes zip lines and things like mountain bike trails. So more of that's coming every year. Yeah, I've uh, I've heard the same thing about, you know, at least for Whistler, I know that Crankworks is now their busiest week of the year. And that bar none, it's busier than the, you know, the Christmas skiing, New Year's holiday season, spring break, whatever. Yeah, more people come to Whistler for Crankworks in the summer than they do at any time during the winter. So it's pretty cool to see that shift. Yeah. And Greg, getting back to what you were saying about the, you know, towns that were previously focused on resource extraction or even industry before, um, Pisgah is like Aaron mentioned is one of those examples. It used to be, uh, several large mills in the area that closed down. And so they're looking more to mountain bike tourism. You look at Oak Ridge, Oregon and, yeah places all over the U.S. But what's also interesting is um, when you talk about places like Coldwater and uh, Arkansas, these aren't like, you know, sort of overnight success type stories either. These 
communities have really committed to trying to bring in mountain bike tourism. There's a lot of money that goes into trying to attract mountain bikers and creating the infrastructure and the marketing and all that stuff that goes into it. So in my mind, that's, that's a great thing for us as mountain bikers because we have people really competing for our business and um, trying to outdo each other. You know, there's these communities all over, all across the U.S. and and the the world too, I imagine, um, that are trying to compete for our business. And so, yeah, it just keeps getting better and better. Let's talk a little bit about mountain bike media. I personally feel like that's something that's a bit of a bright spot right now. You know, in, in previous years, you know, back in the 90s, if you wanted to watch mountain bike videos, you couldn't. They're like, it wasn't on TV. Maybe every now and then there would be like a ABC Sports, you know, Saturday, yeah. like X Games. The wide world of sports. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. But but yeah, there really wasn't an outlet uh, before the internet and YouTube and uh, all these media channels that are out there now. So in my mind, yeah, there's never been a better time to connect to our sport thanks to video sites and news sites and frankly, sites like single tracks. <laughs> of course, got to get that plug in there. Yeah, I would totally uh, agree with you. I think like we were talking about just the vast array of options that you have for bikes, you now have the same thing for your media about bikes. So, you know, if you, whatever brand of cycling you, you subscribe to, then uh, there's a website out there for you. You know, if you're into bike packing or if you're really into nerding out about race results or you like tech heavy stuff or you like, you know, human interest pieces, whatever, there's a, there's definitely a site out there for you. So, um, that's pretty cool too, that there's a, just a variety of different ways that, uh, cycling and mountain biking in particular are being covered. You know, I love nerding out about media and trends in media and, you know, it depends on, who you are a little bit, whether or not like this shift is good. You know, we've had several print magazines go out of business or go online only, but sort of as the gatekeepers to this traditional media breakdown, it opens up tons of opportunities for individuals like you and me to get into media. You know, this could be people like YouTube personalities, like, oh, I'm blanking now. Three, Seth Alvo, yeah, Seth, Seth Spikes, Hacks, and uh, you know, and other people like him. So you know, and people making blogs, people freelancing for sites who maybe couldn't you know, make a dent in the industry before. So if you're part of the old school, the old uh, I'm blanking on words now, but there are more opportunities for new people to get into it. Yes, the media landscape's definitely democratized uh, the whole sort of industry and the way that the industry gets covered. Yeah, everything from video to words to photos, which is pretty awesome. So everything is not perfect with mountain biking right now. Um, there are definitely some challenges. And so I wanted to talk about some of those. Um, and first on, on my list was mountain bike participation. A little while ago, we looked at some stats about the diversity of mountain biking and not surprisingly, there there really isn't any diversity in terms of <laughs> the people who participate in mountain biking. Um, it's mostly older white males, which is you know not necessarily a good thing for the growth of the sport. Or you know, some people might argue that it's, it's it could be more interesting, I guess, if there were more uh, diversity. But also looking at the numbers, Aaron touched on the general cycling participation, but looking at mountain biking specifically. 
Apparently, the sport has only grown in terms of participation about 2.5% in the last three years. And whenever we look at this number, and this has been going on for years and years, for five or 10 years at least, you know, just growing like 1% or 2% a year. And every time I bring this number up, people are always shocked, mountain bikers are anyway, because they're like, hey, I can't believe it, man. It's growing like crazy. All my friends are getting into it. And I don't know what to say about that, you know, other than like, there's maybe there's a lot of people leaving the sport. But yeah, it's definitely interesting to note, given how much we're putting into building new trails and all the new bikes that are coming out, um, it's still the pie isn't getting a whole lot bigger. Um, and that could be could be due to the, you know, some of the constraints on diversity right now. I have one thought with that. Like part of me wonders, and this is just totally supposition here, but since we're podcasting, Aaron <laughs> was saying like the numbers for participation were based on people riding uh, at least seven times a year. And for most of us, that's that's next to nothing. So I wonder if if passion is growing for the sport. So maybe based on that metric of seven a year, it's not growing, but maybe rider days are growing. You know, that would fill trailheads more. You know, people if they're just riding more days per week or month, that seems like there's more people out on mountain bikes. Yeah, I think that's a good theory. I think it's it's like everything else in our world right now where there's a lot of sort of polarization and so you know, if, if you've identified with this mountain bike tribe, then you just get more and more involved in it. And our tribe isn't growing, but we're becoming more fervent about it anyway. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, Jeff, it's definitely a, a very white, very male sport, which I could, you know, as a white male, I wouldn't mind seeing a little more non-white males out on the trail. <laughs> But, you know, I think maybe with, with, you know, your programs like, uh, the National Interscholastic Cycling Association, the NICA leagues that are popping up all around the country and have been, I think by all accounts, very successful. Hopefully that'll bring more people into mountain biking, you know, male and female and all races. And hopefully that just exposes more people to the sport because, you know, we do, we want mountain bike to continue to thrive on into the future and we want people to, care about getting out and riding and, you know, care about being outside and care about trails. So, you know, we can't leave it all up to the old white guys. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about that just reminded me of this, maybe this is a bit off topic, but, but we're podcasting. We're podcasting. (laughs) So why not? We've got, we got plenty of digital space here. So, but yeah, you know, I was thinking about how college is a time where at least for me personally, it was really tough to continue mountain biking. And maybe this isn't everyone's experience, but my fear is that we are getting people into mountain biking when they're in high school, when their parents can buy their bike, parents can take them to the race. They have trails nearby. Whereas when you go off to college, a lot of colleges are in urban places. So you're not near trails. Uh, a lot of, at least where I went to school, most people didn't have their own car. So there wasn't really an easy way to get to trails. There's nowhere to store a bike. You know, people like lock their bike up outside and, you know, it gets stolen within the first month or so. So, yeah, I I personally have just been thinking about that lately, especially with Greg's article about some colleges that are good choices if you are a mountain biker. But in general, it seems like it's one of those things. It's almost it's like religion, too. You know, let me get really deep. But like, (laughs) like, you know, people grow up, they go to church and then they go to college and like, I don't have to go to church on Sunday. And so like they lose that passion and like they maybe never come back. And I wonder if that's what happens with mountain bikers sometimes because it is, it's expensive sport, takes a lot of time uh, and it's not really accessible, you know, to a lot of people based on where they are geographically. 
Anyway, I, I, I think there's some validity, validity to that. Although I think, you know, if someone really gets like the passion for it, like if let's say they are in a Nike league and they really get into racing, I mean, chances are like that will then impact where they do decide to go to college. You know, maybe like if they care about cycling that much, they'll go to a school that has a really good team if that's if you know if they want to do continue doing the competitive aspect of cycling or they'll you know go to some place in Colorado that has awesome riding nearby or you know maybe they'll just pick up another form of cycling in the interim you know I know when I lived in Savannah when I was going to school there you know there were no trails there's no mountain biking or anything so I rode a BMX bike all over the place and you know, it was because it was very flat there, like legit pancake flat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just rode a BMX bike and, you know, jumped off of loading docks and crap like that. So you find different ways to ride, I think, if you really have the the passion to be on the bike. Yeah, I personally did the most mountain biking I've ever done in one year uh, during my senior year of college. And I also started my career at single tracks while I was in college. So for me personally, you know, it didn't apply, but I do you know, did observe what Jeff was saying happening, you know, despite living in a mountain town in Georgia, we had a small but dedicated group of students that was stoked at mountain biking, but it wasn't big even for the size of the school we were at. So I would probably say I was an exception rather than the rule. And I guess me personally too, uh, <laughs> I'm an exception as well. I mean, that's kind of how single tracks got its start was Leah and I, we went to different colleges, and so we traveled back and forth uh, between the two and would ride mountain bike trails um, close to our respective campuses. So, yeah, I definitely can see that. But like you said, I didn't know many people that rode mountain bikes, and it was hard to convince people to do it just because it's a lot of trouble. So, all right, anyway, let's go back. So what about uh, access issues? Seems like we're hearing a lot about that. Or is, or is some of it like scaremongering? What do you guys think? Are we, are we in a crisis of mountain bike advocacy right now? Well, that's a deep question. Uh, whether or not the advocates are up to the task is something I can't, I don't know if I'm equipped to address, but I have observed that despite the fact we're building more and more trails every year, we're still constantly losing single track to wilderness and wilderness study areas year after year. And some people would like us to think, oh, it's just happening once here and there. It's not a big deal. But if you look at the trends over time, it is a consistent trend. It's not slowing down anytime soon. And you would think we'd have enough wilderness areas already, but the wilderness advocates don't think that, and they keep trying to build more wilderness. And, you know, whether or not the sheer volume of trails we're building that are brand new offsets the numeric loss of single track via wilderness is kind of a moot point. You were still, however you slice it, we're still losing access to the trails through the most beautiful places in our nation that are being turned into wilderness. So we've definitely talked a lot about this on single tracks. I've got a two-part podcast with the Sustainable Trails Coalition that you can listen to. And I also have an article on single tracks titled, Opening Wilderness to Mountain Bikes is the Most Important Advocacy Effort in History, which sort of gives an overview of the topic and my opinion on it. What do you guys think about what is sort of the opinion of the general public of mountain bikers right now? Um, do you think it's it's better now than it has been in the past, or, or are we starting to slip back into the territory of you know being seen as scofflaws and people that are wrecking the environment? Well, maybe Aaron wants to talk, um, but 
I think this you got to look at the tourism question, you know, with the towns all over the place wanting to bring in mountain bike tourism. I think that points to a favorable perspective of mountain bikers. I've heard the argument made that mountain bike tourists are some of the best tourists you can have because they come in, they stay in your hotels, they spend money. Maybe they're a little bit dirty, but they get tired after their ride. They drink a beer and then they go to bed. You know, they're not causing any trouble in your town. Um, whereas like a lot of big events classically that towns would try to bring in come with parties that last all night and vandalism and stuff of that nature. So uh, mountain bikers are very respectful and people are starting to realize the demographic, while it doesn't lead to good diversity, like bringing in middle-aged dudes with a six-figure income is good for your town. So, Right. Good for business. Okay. So we talked a little bit about bikes uh, earlier as being a bright spot in mountain biking right now. What about the next big thing? Is there a next big thing for us to look forward to right now? Yeah, that's a tough question. I think this is why a lot of riders get fed up, you know, apart from how expensive bikes are, they get fed up with the constantly changing wheel sizes and tire widths and axle spacing and all the, you know, supposed improvements that companies roll out year after year. Just the pace of it is really just increased exponentially, it seems like, over the last few years. And your bike is outdated before it even ships to your bike shop you know before it's even built up and you roll it out the door there's already super boost plus spacing you know so i think that that's kind of uh led to a lot of people being irritated a lot of like analysis paralysis which i could definitely empathize with because there just are there's so many options like we mentioned earlier it's awesome that you have all those options but it can also be overwhelming because yeah, do I want a titanium single-speed drop bar gravel bike or do I want a, you know, 160 mil travel full suspension? So I think all these little tweaks are just, you know, they're little improvements. You know, they're not, it's not revolutionary, it's it's evolutionary, which I think is good because, you know, because bikes are in a good spot now. But I think part of the reason we see these just tiny tweaks is because there isn't really like a next big thing that people are working on like bikes are just so damn good i think the only thing left now to improve upon is the motor which is generally speaking a person but um uh, as we've uh, covered a little bit on the site and talked about e-bikes i think are what at least manufacturers are betting on being the next big thing i'm kind of skeptical that they will be i just don't i don't see a huge market for five thousand dollar e-bikes but who knows? I could be wrong. I, I didn't think Twitter was going to make it either. So <laughs> you were wrong on Twitter. Jeez. But I mean, they're 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 not doing so great either. So it was kind of <laughs> there. Right. You go. Just, Final vindication. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I think uh, I th- I think we kind of have maybe scraped the bottom of the evolutionary barrel, and uh, now they're like, okay, well, this thing's carbon fiber. It weighs twenty five pounds. We run out of ways to make it better. Let's put a motor on it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. And I think, yeah, you touched on e-bikes too, and that's probably going to lead to more challenges um, in other areas like trail access and that kind of thing that we just talked about. So what about local bike shops? We've been hearing, hearing about the decline of the local bike shop. Yeah. For a while. Uh, is that looking any better in 2017 or where are we at? It's not looking good. Unfortunately, from the national 
Bicycle Dealers Association, uh, we've seen a 42% decline in bike shops since 2001, which was their peak. So that was the, you know, Lance Armstrong era when he was uh, cheating his way to all those yellow jerseys. So yeah, it doesn't look good for your local bike shop. You know, margins are getting thinner and thinner, which means the money that they make on the stuff that they sell is less and less. You know, there's pressure to commit heavily to a single brand. And so shops essentially are just just become showrooms for that brand. So they kind of lose some of their individual mojo that they might otherwise have. Uh, you know, the consumer direct model, as I mentioned earlier, that's going to further eat into their complete bike sales. Um, cause once people are comfortable buying things online, I mean, and, and we've seen this like with Amazon, you know, with, you know, if you look at the stats from, you know, Black Friday, you know, the Thanksgiving holiday season, like more people are buying stuff online than they are in brick and mortar stores anymore. So I think it's only a matter of time and it'll be a very short time that people are completely comfortable with buying a bike online and without riding it, without demoing it. And because honestly, you know, once you get to, you know, a certain quality of bike, you're talking about very small differences that can have a big impact on riding, but you know, then you're talking about just getting the best price on the components that you can. So that's why consumer direct model where you don't have all these different channels that the bikes go through that allows you to offer a much better price to the consumer and and your local bike shop just can't touch that you know it's like just like they can't compete with online retailers for you know a lot of components that you know the price that you can pay for some stuff online is less than they can get it for from their distributor so it's kind of a mess right now, and it doesn't really look good for your local bike shop, unfortunately. You know, they're going to have to focus more and more on service, and they're going to have to focus on creating some sort of community so that the bike shop itself is a destination, because otherwise you're just going to go online. So if it's not a place where you're comfortable and, like, people hang out and it's not, like, a hub of, you know, cycling activity in your town, then it's probably not going to make it, unfortunately. In addition to local bike shops being on the decline, sales in the industry are down overall. You'd think uh, with the uptick in online sales that sales by brand would still be good, but that appears not to be the case. Uh, One that was widely reported were Shimano sales in 2016, which according to Bicycle Retailer were down about 19% in sales and 30% in operating income. I'm not a business major, so I don't know how those two relate, but whatever it is, it's not good for Shimano. Uh, a few other big brands that have been taking hits include Shram um, and Specialized, who both have had to lay off workers in the past year. And we already talked about interbike attendance by brands and consumers, consumers being industry people, being down drastically in 2016. And, you know, those are three of the biggest um, brands in the mountain biking industry and the biggest show in North America. All those things are just indicative of where the industry at is that as a whole, you know, and I like, I don't like to talk about, you know, bike sales as the biggest indicator of whether or not the sport is successful, but all this stuff trickles out. You know, if the brands have less money, there's less money for product development. There's possibly less money being donated advocacy efforts. So it's all interrelated. Yeah, definitely. Whoa, this, this got really heavy here at the end. Sorry to bum everybody out. (laughs) Yeah. So it sounds like Maybe we're not in such a golden age right now. Maybe we're in the bronze or the silver age. What do you guys see for 2017 and beyond? Can 
are we going to see the challenges become greater or where are we going from here? Yeah, who knows? Um, we are entering a very strange time in the world at large. So, you know, who's who knows what's going to happen over the next few years, you know, in the world in general and how that will impact mountain biking. But yeah, hopefully, you know, if the economy continues to improve and, uh, you know, people are still making money and going to work, then hopefully they'll want to spend some of that money recreating and one of those options will be mountain biking. I, man, it's complicated, especially forecasting the future. You know, there's, it's no easy way to do it. I, I don't think it's going to be bad for anybody who's currently a mountain biker, you know, but like I said before, I think the one golden age we're seeing is trail building, but I see trail building already starting to slow down, you know, despite what Northwest Arkansas is doing. Uh, I've heard a lot of land managers say, all right, guys, enough. Like we've built you enough trails. Our land is getting saturated, you know. We need to focus, like the land managers are saying that they need to focus on other things and they're starting to say no to trails because they don't have time to do it or there's already a lot of trails. You know, reading between the lines on a lot of the stuff coming out of Moab, it sounds like that's what Moab is hitting right now. You know, they built a lot of trails over a lot of years and now they're hitting brick walls. And I've heard the same thing closer to home in my local districts here in Colorado. So, you know, I think... Yeah, I think some of these things can only last for so long, but exactly how it's going to shake out in long term, that's hard to say. Yeah. And Greg, you touched on it just now, but if you are someone that has a mountain bike that you enjoy riding and you've got trails you like riding, then don't worry about any of this stuff. You know, you're still going to have fun no matter what happens. And there are currently more trails, you know, probably in your state than you'll ever be able to ride in a lifetime. So there's no need to worry that, you know, you're missing out on trails that are going to get shut down. There's definitely a lot still for those who are dedicated to the sport. So we hope you've enjoyed our conversation about the idea of a golden age of mountain biking. Hopefully you're not too bummed out to give us five <laughs> stars on the iTunes store for our podcast. That's all we have for this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.